This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. When we started this podcast a few years ago, the main concept behind it, the notion of the next stage, is the argument that Zionism, as a, a Jewish liberation movement, had run its course, had ended, had succeeded, um, and that we were living in the conditions created by Zionism's success. And uh, a lot of the project of this podcast has really been working to identify the next objectives of Jewish liberation in order to create a post-Zionist Jewish liberation movement that can protect Zionism's positive achievements while at the same time cleaning up its mess and correcting its flaws and actually addressing the goals of Jewish liberation that Zionism uh, never got to and, and was never really able to get to. And now that we're at our 99th episode, I decided to ask a friend of mine who I would call a Zionist or maybe a neo-Zionist as he applies a lot of Zionist ideology to the modern conditions of the Jewish people. Uh, Adam Scott Bellows. Adam is a... How would you define yourself, Adam? I'm a Zionist. Adam's a Zionist, but he's not only a Zionist. He's a mover and a shaker and a powerhouse in his own right. He's got a couple television shows. He drinks a lot of wine with guests. I don't know if anybody's ever seen Wine on the Vine. Is that it? Wine, wine, wine with Adam. Wine with Adam. I'm sorry. Wine with Adam is our, is our project to promote Israeli wine. So let, let's rewind a little bit, Adam. I want listeners to know who you are before they hear your opinions, because perhaps knowing a little bit of, about you and your story will help them to take your opinions a little more seriously. So, Adam, <laughs> Okay. <yeah. laughs> I love it. So Let's a, do it. A, Adam, why don't you uh, share for our listeners who you are, where you're coming from, and, and how you got here? Uh, okay. No specifics. You just want me to, to riff? Mm-hmm. So uh, my name is Adam Scott Bellows. I'm the CEO of the Israel Innovation Fund. Um, I'm also the host of two shows, one called Wine with Adam. The other is ILTV's Insider, which is a political debate show, which I moderate. Um, which you've not yet invited me to. I have not yet had you as a guest on that show, mm -hmm. but but we are planning a Wine with Adam with you. Yeah, I'm looking forward yeah. to that. I, I'd like to zero in on the wine. Which which winery are we going to we're, feature? I, I told you we're probably going to do Shiloh. Okay, I'm or, with or that. Kabir. Okay, like uh, we definitely something from Yehuda Vishamron. We're very big on promoting mm -hmm. wineries from Judea and Samaria. That's a very important thing to me. Um, basically, I have a degree in Judaic and Middle Eastern history from the University of Arizona. You can make a lot of money with that. W make a lot of money with the with degree. With that degree. I, yeah, yeah. You can't make a lot of money with that degree. <laughs> Um, and then I have a master's degree in, uh, in Middle Eastern history from Tel Aviv University. Um, I served in the army in Hebron and Bethel in the civil administration. Um, so I was stationed in Judea basically for most of my army service. Um, uh, I've been heavily involved in, in uh, consulting for a number of different parties and, and individual politicians since I moved here. Um, you know, my big thing was helping... Um, people who couldn't articulate the conflict articulate it in a mainstream type of middle-grounded way to have the most appealing 
you know, argument in terms of a voter base. Um, I've done a lot of work with communication and style and it, with people that are in and out of politics. Um, but for the last six years, I've mainly focused on culturally promoting Israel and creating opportunities for young Jews and non-Jews to connect to Israel outside of religion and outside of politics and allowing them to understand what I would call Hebrew culture or Israeli culture or Jewish culture or even Judean culture. Um, uh, also in like the most recent past of the last year, I've gotten heavily involved with the liberation and sovereignty for the Temple Mount movement. Um, I, I, I very much articulate it as a, as a cultural right. Um, I don't get like to get into the religion or the politics of it, even though it's all religion or politics when it comes to the Temple Mount. I, I'm just a very big believer in Israeli sovereignty over holy spaces. And uh, I do believe it's something that from secular to religious, it is something that every Jew should be fighting for. Um, does that give you a good intro into who I am? Well, it doesn't really tell anybody how you got here. Like, <laughs> how like, I got here? Like, where, where'd you so, grow up? So I, I, grew up, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Whole you, family's from Chicago. Were you the only Jew in your class? No, I went to Jewish day school. Mm -hmm. Like, actually, it was very weird. Like, I, I always had this very distinct, strong Jewish identity from as early as I can remember. I, I used to go to preschool at the synagogue. That's where my parents would send me to preschool, both in Chicago and then in Cincinnati when we moved when I was four. And like, I distinctly remember every time I would leave preschool in Chicago. So this is pre four years old, mm -hmm. okay? Two years old, three years old, four years old. I couldn't have my mom take me out of the synagogue until we went back into the children's Bet Knesset, mm -hmm. okay? Because there was a separate room like that was set up for the kids. Mm -hmm. And they would have to open the ark for me so I could kiss the Torah before I left. Mm. And so growing up, there was always this, well, we weren't religious. Somehow my Jewish identity was always encouraged and um, I, I guess you could say nurtured. Like they, my parents sent me to Jewish day school when we moved to Cincinnati, Ohio. It was a very Zionist school where it was half day Hebrew, half day English. Um, I, I later went to public school in junior high and high school where we had 20% Jews at our public high school. Like uh, at one point, uh, every Jewish holiday had at least one day that we were given off to the entire school because there would be so many people missing from classes. Mm. And uh, it was actually when I was in junior high where that was repealed because a Palestinian family actually complained about it and uh, said, if the Jews get off for this, we should get off for Ramadan and things like that. And it was, um, it, but the reason why was purely a population issue. There was a more than a large minority compared to at this time in Ohio where there was not a very large Muslim or Palestinian community at all. Mm. Um, so when I was 18, I went on the March of the Living and it was the first time like I, it, to Poland. Yeah, to Poland, to Poland and then to Israel. To, to see like the death camps. Yeah. Like, uh, and, and it, honestly, the trip changed my life. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but it didn't like radically, it was more of like a mental metamorphosis, so to speak, where like I viewed the world completely differently, but I was still me, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. I didn't like all of a sudden become religious or this or that or make any gigantic life changes given the trajectory of, you know, it was right before I'm going to college and there's this plan that's been put in place for you that's very traditional. And... Um, yeah, I, I, it was something about walking through the camps with living Jews. 
if that makes sense, that was so moving. And also meeting Jews from all over the world on the train ride to Auschwitz, mm -hmm. which which still sticks with me that it was fun. We were bouncing from car to car. Like it's not something that you would associate any type of fun with. But if you really think about it, the fact that Jews from all over the world were coming together on this train to go then make the walk into Auschwitz together, it's a very, very powerful thing. And I remember on Friday night celebrating Shabbat in Warsaw. Okay, Friday and Saturday, that Shabbat is probably the most impactful Shabbat I've ever experienced. Not because I kept it, but because there was a crowd of us in the, in the parking lot or the front entrance of this beautiful hotel in Warsaw, and you had 200 young Jews, 18 to, let's say, 21, or 16 to 21, screaming, Am Yisrael Chai, Chai Vikayam, waving Israeli flags, like, doing a Kabbalat Shabbat that would put any good Karli Bach to shame just out of the sheer, like, joy that was being expressed. And then the next day, we went to the only you know, active synagogue at that time in Warsaw, and it was the first time I danced during a Saturday night morning service, or Saturday morning service. And and being able, because of my Jewish education, this was the first time I was traveling internationally, and all of a sudden I'm in a shul halfway across the world, and I understand what's going on, I know what's going on. It was the first time where I saw that my Jewish education had prepared me to be a global Jew and be comfortable wherever I needed to be because I could always find a Jewish community. And then after we left Poland, we came to Israel, and that was my first time in Israel. And it was just surreal. It was 2005, right after the Intifada happened, you know, and there was still this tension of safety, but at the same time, there was just this beautiful spiritual essence that I had not felt ever before. And, and that changed me, and I came back, and, uh, you know, I, I went to college, and a year and a half later, I'm sitting in a voice training for the actor too, because I was going to school for filmmaking. And I had like my Herzl moment, so to speak, where I was just like, what the hell am I doing here? This isn't helping me. This is, maybe this is only helping me what I'm doing. And there's no way that what I'm gonna do is gonna affect other people in a positive way. And I got in the car and I drove to Cincinnati and I had a meeting with my rabbi. And he was like, you need to go to Israel. And uh, I studied abroad in Tel Aviv University in 2007. And I, I never looked back that I became a Zionist on that trip, I like to say, um, where I fully understood and grasped the ideological wings of Zionism, the tenets of it, why it was created, how it was built, how it emerged. And um, I fell in love with Israel. Um, when I was done with that semester, I went back to the States and finished my degree at the University of Arizona, where I did a lot of Hasbara work like as you could call it. Um, I also helped run the Hillel and the Chabad, and I built a Jewish fraternity with seven guys that now has 150 on campus almost 20 years later. And uh, it's one of the largest houses at the most Greek school in the country. Th and this is a Epi? No, this was a Sigma Alpha Mu. Okay, I, I, I was too old, I think, to really pledge a fraternity. I was mm -hmm. 21, mm -hmm. so and I was a transfer student. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all of the kids that were my age would have been in senior positions. So I said, why join a frat when I can start my own? I've always had this idea, and I want to speak to you about some of the other things you mentioned, but just on this issue of the fraternities, I noticed, you know, during a lot of my, first of all, when I was an undergrad student and also just the traveling I do on campuses, I noticed a distinct difference between what we can call the mainstream Greek system mm -hmm. of the fraternities and the sororities mm -hmm. versus the black and Latino fraternities and sororities. 
And I noticed that the Jewish fraternities uh, consistently put themselves in the mainstream, quote unquote, white fraternity space. Like they want to be a fraternity like, I don't know, Sigma Chi or so like this or like that. Have, we had a very mixed. But, but I, I don't mean in terms of the demographic of the uh -huh. house. I'm saying that. You know, I always thought that what the Jewish people, especially the Jewish college students in America, mm -hmm. needs is a fraternity like the black fraternities, meaning a fraternity that actually forces pledges to learn about their identity and their culture while they are pledging to make that like a real part of the educational thrust of what's being experienced you know, a, a real kind of like a, a place to really, whether it be like a Jabotinsky style Jewish nationalism or something else, but something where there is a lot of Jewish national consciousness, because obviously that is something that the Jewish college student in America needs today. He mm -hmm. needs an injection of national consciousness, mm -hmm. right? And I think that if the Jewish fraternities were less like the white people fraternities and a lot more like the black or Latino fraternities, they would probably achieve that. So I, I can't really speak to other fraternities. I, I mean, like, I, I'll give you my piece on this. Mm -hmm. um, we had a very mixed group of people. You know, it was a majority of Jewish people, but we had African-Americans, we had Latinos, we had Native Americans. Um, we, we, we were very big on not discriminating against other people the way that we had been discriminated in the past, which was the reason why Jewish fraternities had to be built in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, at Arizona, specifically when I was there, which is considered to be like the Greek school of Greek schools, I do not remember there being a specific fraternity for African Americans or a specific fraternity for Hispanics. I don't remember if there was one. Now, now In my experience, now, they're usually separate from the Greek system. Um, so, so sometimes yes and sometimes no. I, I did almost join an all-black fraternity when I was in Chicago. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but I remember walking in and just, it, I was the only light-skinned person really there, and everybody was extremely welcoming, and it was great. So I can't really say to, like, what they're <laughs> teaching in in minority-based fraternities, but I can't say for this for 80 Pi and for, for Sammy, at least, even though Sammy isn't really considered a Jewish fraternity anymore, they're just considered the first Jewish fraternity. AE Pi really takes the cake for being the Jewish fraternity. You know, our electoral board was called the Sanhedrin. Mm -hmm. Like we, we hosted Shabbat dinners every week. Uh, and then us as a fraternity, even the non-Jews would go with us to Shabbat dinner because they loved the culture and the vibe. Mm -hmm. um, Although when I was at Syracuse, mm -hmm. I started a chapter of AEPI. Oh, okay. And it's an interesting story. I, at the time, was coming from a very different place. Mm -hmm. um, I was not wearing a kippah. I was not Shabbat observant. Mm -hmm. um, I was actually the... First, the Jewish Heritage Chair, and then later the what, what was called Master, I guess, mm -hmm. President, you know, fa Founding mm -hmm. Father, mm -hmm. Master, whatever. And I remember having a lot of most of my actual friends socially were black and Latino kids, or some white kids also mm -hmm. actually on campus. Um, you know, kids I'd go to the bars with, get high with, mm -hmm. you know, play video games with, mm -hmm. whatever. And they were interested in joining. Could you could you go to a bar, get high, and play video games at the same time? Um, I don't remember any of those. <laughs> I don't remember those campus bars uh, uh, having video games. Uh, every now and then you find like a, a pinball machine, yeah, or, or an arcade machine, or a Pac-Man. Right. Wow, I just dated us so poorly. <laughs> you know what Pac-Man is? Yeah. No. You know the truth is, I asked one of my kids if they knew what Pac-Man was about a week ago, and they did. So. Oh it, wow. Yeah. Good for your children. Yeah. So yeah, they're, like they're, they're very cultured. 
but but I remember this coming up, this this friction coming up, where I would I wanted, even though it wasn't necessarily how I was living, I wanted the Jewish fraternity AEPI to be kind of like the black fraternities. I wanted us to like really push Jewish identity. I wanted to force pledges to go to like the Chabad house to help make a minion, even though it wasn't mm-hmm. something that I was doing at the time. Um, and the other guys were like, we can't do that. That's not what we're about. We're not. And, and they kept, you know, kind of like compartmentalizing, like that's like religious people. We're not a religious fraternity. We're a Jewish fraternity. So I kept asking like, well, what does that mean to you? Because the truth is that, you know, my college experience was also an experience of kind of like, meeting the like suburban Jew from Long Island and New Jersey from the first time and and not like really understanding this identity because mm-hmm. it was so different from the identity I had growing up. I'm sure you're familiar with the term Jap, like Jewish American mm-hmm. prince yeah. or princess. That was kind of their identity. Their identity was to be like, I don't know, like like white kids, but a little more spoiled. I don't know. Like th- that was kind of the identity. And and like that's what they wanted their fraternity to be. I, mean, I, don't, th- I don't know if it's really real to say white kids. I mean, they were upper, upper middle class. There's a, there's a certain type of socioeconomic cultural background that comes from that, whether or not you're well, Latino, white, Christian, I, I, I guess, Jewish, I black. guess they had really, um, it, it seemed just based on the experience I was having at the time. And I, and I can't say that I had the tools to really properly understand what I was encountering, but what I was experiencing at the time was that these Jews were substituting their socioeconomic privilege Mm -hmm. and set of experiences for Jewish identity, meaning the Jewish identity was missing and Mm -hmm. that was standing in its place. I I mean, listen, there's... And they were calling that the Jewish identity. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of that in in America, even for people that are not Japs. Right, so I had encountered it for the first time. Meaning, growing up, I uh, I grew up in New York City, you know, and, and also... I kind of grew up with wild kids and, and, and it's a city living versus suburban living. Totally. Different yeah, experience. that's true. Yeah. And I had met kids like them. Mm-hmm. The truth is I had met kids like them in New York. Those kids existed, mm-hmm. but they understood who we were and they understood their place in the food chain. Okay. Meaning that like, you know, it was kind of like an honor culture and, and people solved the problems through violence. Like if somebody, no, like if like you wrote over my name on a wall, we'd yeah. have to fight. Like I'd have to do something about right. it or else I, I have a problem. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and, and that was like the culture I was coming from. And yeah, I knew I was going to college and things are going to be There was different. actually a great movie made a couple of years ago about this, but oh. not from the Jewish perspective. Okay. Just What's in general, it's called Havoc. Okay. And it was with um, Anne Hathaway. And she did it as a movie to kind of break away from her good girl imagery. Mm-hmm. And it was about these two young high school girls who want to be portrayed as something maybe a little bit more bad than they actually are, who are from like a very wealthy, you know. In um, New York? No, in California. Okay. And their boyfriends are, you know, uh, you know, pseudo gangster, like suburban kids driving around in Mercedes that their parents bought. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing is about how like they want to see real thugs and not the guys that they're growing up with who are losers. And it's all about like, getting caught up in that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in terms of fronting, so to speak, yeah. um, if that makes sense. And uh, it's a great example mm-hmm. of like that genre of, I guess you could say, socioeconomic, like, right, well, like, per, like, uh, it's a lack of identity. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a embarrassment, mm-hmm. actually, mm-hmm. of of where you stand and how you behave, and and if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, one thing I will say, just in terms of the cultural, I guess, uh, environment I grew up in, was that there were a lot of people 
who were what you would call fronting mm -hmm. at first, who actually, a after a couple of years, just became the real thing mm -hmm. because of that's how life is sometimes. Right. You know, there are people who just like want to be something and then they become it. And and sometimes they, they should be careful what they wish for. You know, they, yes. I've seen a lot of a lot of kids who had a lot of opportunities end up really ruining their lives. And a lot of them are actually not here anymore just because they wanted so bad to succeed in that like gangster environment. Mm -hmm. the, surprisingly, not so many films have been made about New York City teenage life when I was growing up. The only one that, that has really come out is Kids, and that came out in real time. That came out in 1995. Mm. Uh, but other than that, I, I'm just shocked to this day because it was an environment where you had kids from the projects and kids from Park Avenue actually part of the same social space. Interesting. Um, and, and it was a real education. I mean, educationally, it was uh, actually fantastic in terms of just like learning how to deal with different kinds of people, you know, and, and uh, it's really, I, I would say, I, I don't know if growing up in New York has that same educational power as it once did. Um, I'm sure it doesn't because this is also right before like cell phones and the internet and you know it's a whole different age. Yeah, this, right? this is when like kids were still hanging out on stoops or, or on corners and you know or in playgrounds and bars and like I used to know the phone numbers of the payphones on certain corners by heart to like call and see who's there before right. I decide if I'm gonna like go that way with my night. You know, like like that was the world. It's a way of life that just doesn't. We, we had beepers. Yeah, we, we it doesn't beepers. exist yeah. anymore. Man, I remember when I was in grade school, all I wanted was a beeper. Right. So that's what we had up till like, until college. I think I don't think I had a cell phone until I was in college. But anyway, back to the fraternities. So I remember that I had this disagreement with the other Jews that made up the e-board of the AE Pi chapter we were starting. I wanted it to be like something that was kind of like hardcore and taught Jewish identity mm -hmm. in a real way, in a deep way. And they were looking for just kind of like a white person's fraternity, but for Jews who had no real connection to who they were. They didn't really have an identity that, that I was picking up on. So in the end, I was just like, listen, either we let my black friends join or we make this a real Jewish thing. Like I'm, I'm not into making it like a fake Jewish thing and my friends don't get to join. Mm -hmm. like, like either one or the, either go this way or that way, right? If you want to make it exclusive, cool. It could be all Jews, only Jews, but it's got to be deep and it's got to be real. And that means like Jewish content is going to be centered when we're hazing pledges or whatever. And people are just like not down. And I think in the end what I did, not that this is like the right move, but I was, I guess, kind of a kid. I, I think I was like 19 at the time. I, I basically took the money out of the bank account. I went to Denver, Colorado for the Star Wars celebration because, they, you know, <laughs> okay, yeah. Episode one had just dropped or was about to drop and whatever. A friend of mine from New York was going and I figured I'd go with him. And, and this fraternity thing was just like not happening. And I, I just took the money and I went to Denver and uh, that was an interesting adventure in and of itself. You know, the star this is like, I think the first Star Wars celebration that they had done. The only one I've been to, but this is like the first of many probably right before episode one dropped. I remember it was right after the Columbine shooting. So there were no like blasters at the celebration, uh, but it was a good time. Uh, it was like, you know, nerds from the four corners of the galaxy before nerds were cool. Mm -hmm. And then there was like us who were, you know, we weren't so nerdy ourselves, but we, we, we loved we had, Star Wars. We had, to, we had to hide our Star Wars love. No, I, I you know, we, we actually, in, in the um, cultural climate I grew up in, some of the toughest guys actually were really into Star Wars. That's so so, so it was like really a thing that it was actually cool. But I remember when trying to like get into Star Wars, like in college, people were like, isn't that like a nerd thing? I, I put up a original Star Wars poster in one of my first apartments in, in Arizona. 
and the people that I was living with, who I didn't live with for very long, I ended up moving, they started complaining that I put it up. I was like, this is a beautiful piece of artwork from one of the greatest films of all time. Like, back off. Right, right, right. <laughs> no, the, the truth is, I think we have a lot to learn from Star Wars. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. It's, it's one of the most brilliant things ever created in entertainment, but it also just has so much allegory for the Jewish people and also just... I, it's just a fascinating thing. I mean, like Star Wars. We can, we, you and I can do a whole podcast just. We probably Star should Wars. one day. It's fine with me. Yeah. So, any, all right. So, your experience growing up. All right. So, you're self-identifying as a Zionist. One of the claims I often make on the show is that Zionism ended in 1967. Since then, the Jewish people have really been waiting for the next Jewish liberation project that can kind of carry the baton from where Zionism ended. We can get into why I feel that way, or we can get into why you don't. But I, I'm just curious, you call yourself a Zionist. You believe that Zionism as a set of ideas has something to offer this generation of Jews and this chapter of Jewish history? I mean, I think it's more than just a set of ideas. Well, I think I think that once you become a Zionist... For well, your... why don't you go deeper, well, well, a little I... more specific? What ideological tendency of Zionism do you identify as a revisionist Zionist, as a labor Zionist, as a religious Zionist, as a cultural Zionist? Like what? So I, I, I as, as ridiculous as this sounds, I don't really have a label <laughs> other than Zionist. I, I mean, like I, I, a general Zionist. I, I mean, like, listen, there are things when it comes to myself. Yeah, I'm a deeply traditional person. I go to the Temple Mount, you know, two or three times a month. Like I, 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 I do not, by the way. I that, just want to make it. Yeah, yeah, no, I know you I don't. don't. I do like, not. I, you know, I go to the mikvah before I go. Well, I go good. up there and I daven. Like it's a, it's an important thing for me. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I just don't find that. Like here, here's the difference between my Zionism and and Moshe Dayan's, for instance. Okay, okay. you know, a, after the Six Day War, they thought there was going to be peace. We thought we were going to be withdrawing mm -hmm. with certain land swaps. Like immediately, if you look at like the immediate reactions, you know, from many documentaries, people are talking about peace. Mm -hmm. This is it. This is the end. And Moshe Dayan, you know, marches into the old city and he looks at the Temple Mount and he goes, "Who needs this Vatican?" Mm -hmm. And like, you know, I would have understood back in the day that you know, the control of this is a sign of power that is very necessary for the region of the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, their ideology of the people who were running the country at the time and who had gained the leadership, you know, which was Mapai and the Labor Party versus the revisionists, because that was the big, mm -hmm. you know, one side or the other. Right. You know, the revisionists would have said, we're taking the Temple Mount and we're not giving back an inch of land. And like, this is the Iron Wall. Okay, and now we've completed it, and, and now we'll be able to enact it, mm -hmm. okay, which was like Jabotinsky and Menachem Begin's foreign policy. And then there was pragmatism, and Zionism is pragmatism, and land for peace and things like that, which was a huge part of the left, the Labor Party, mm -hmm. okay? That is not something that I ascribe to, mm -hmm. okay? I, I, you know, Well, hold on, hold on. I, I just take issue, and, and again, you're going to think I'm this is semantic, and I'm... Uh, it's fine. Uh, right. Semantics are important. Semantics are important. So when I would say the left... I really refer to those who want to replace capitalism with a better system. I don't think that when we refer to people, liberal Zionists... There isn't a better system than capitalism. Well, we could do a show about that as well. We could do a show right. about that. But I, I'm, I'm, free markets are very important. Listen, I'd say a very short tangent. Even if you're going to make the argument that capitalism is the best system, the best mode of production that humanity has come up with so far, you have to acknowledge that we could still do better. I think that capitalism can be improved on. I think there are I think there are definite moral quandaries that need to be asked at certain levels. Mm -hmm. You know, a great example is, 
you know, the original founder of Walmart used to take a $250,000 salary. Okay. The CEO of Walmart, even when it was a publicly traded company. Now, you know, Walmart employees are known for not making that much money while their CEO is taking, you know, a multi-million dollar salary. There are things like that that I do believe that have to be addressed, but I don't think that has to do with, you know, capitalism at its core. I think that has to do with the selfishness of, of certain people at the top. And I think that it's, you, you know, think the incentive structure built into the capitalist system encourages humans to behave that way? I, I think that the incentive structure in the capitalist in capitalism provides people the opportunity to create a demand for themselves to get the most out of their life and reach as high of a peak as possible. I think that um, there's no greater way than to incentivize people. You know, one of the big when Barack Obama wanted to create new taxation. Uh, on people making over $250,000 a year. You know, I, I had met liberals who were staunch Democrats who were completely against it because in their eyes, they were like, well, what's the point of trying to achieve a greater life and to make more money if the more money I make, the more money is going to be taken away, keeping me in the same spot that I was in prior to making this kind of money. There, There is an important, I mean, like, there is an important aspect to capitalism in terms of providing the opportunity for self-growth and, and the ability to move up the ladder. You know, there are there there isn't that with other economic policy that that would not be considered capitalist, like communism and socialism. Um, and I think that's very important. I also think there's a distinct history of communist and socialist countries that have populations that don't have what they need. I, I don't know one. Well, I think we see that increasingly in the United States today. We do, we do, but that has to do with which is uh, not a socialist country. I, it's not a socialist country, but there's also an immigration problem there. There's also a healthcare problem there. The, the United States is very different because they're they don't seem to understand how to deal with their problems in a long-term way anymore. A great example is how COVID played out in America, because. If you if you were really looking at how COVID worked, okay, and and what the lockdowns did, or what policies were good and what policies were bad, Israel was the template for that, and it seemed as if we would make a stride forward, and and then the United States would ignore what we did, and you would have half the people saying one thing and half the people saying another thing. I mean, it was very interesting to see how like individual rights came into the the biggest part of the conversation when it came to COVID protocol in the United States, whereas in Israel, you know, while there was dissension about certain things, you know, taking care of our elderly was a very big thing here and protecting our elderly was a very big thing here. Whereas in the United States, it seems like people didn't really care. One of the things that's been lost in America, okay, which the Jews are just starting to figure out, which is why the Jewish people in America need to start seeing themselves as an ethnic minority and an ethnic voting block, okay? is that we still have our collective manifest destiny ideology here in Israel. Okay, that's missing in America. It's no longer united, we stand, divided, we fall. It's becoming very partisan, very split again. The United States. The United States. Well, it's an empire in decline, and suddenly there's not so much of a pie to go around. And these groups are different groups, meaning some of the people are part of the white settler population. Some of the people were Africans who were kidnapped from their countries and brought as slaves. Some of them are, are what's left of the indigenous population that were pushed onto reservations. And some of them are immigrants who came for a better life, but the promise of America no longer exists because, again, it's an empire in decline. It's like way past its prime. I, I mean, like, you know, you, and I think you what you said, I think, I think I, I don't know if I like the, I, I get what you mean by empire and decline. You don't see that? I don't disagree with it, oh, but good. I also, I also don't think they, 
they can make the choice right now to mm. decline or not decline. And I, and I think that Trump's presidency really showed in terms of their foreign policy, what could be done to improve the United States' situation to not decline? Because what is happening with the United States, they shell out cash to so many different countries all the time and are thus tied to the decisions that these smaller countries make. It's called the tyranny of the weak in foreign policy. Okay. Would you make Israel an example of this? I don't, actually, mm. because I, 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 I don't think that the United... Yes, it... Actually, yes, Israel would be a great example of when we say we're doing what we want and the United States doesn't want us to do X, mm -hmm. Y, or Z or whatever. And, and that's the situation that you get into with a uh, a superpower and its subsidiary, so to speak, or its or its satellite states. Client states. Client states or whatever. Vassal and I wouldn't, I wouldn't call Israel a vassal state mm. by any means whatsoever. I, I really wouldn't. Would I, you say there are people in our political landscape who would like to see Israel as a vassal state sure, of the United States? Sure. And I and I, I definitely think that like one of the things that separated Lapid from Bibi was that he was willing to work on things that Bibi would not, and that's why he was maybe had a little bit of a better relationship with this administration. Like the gas deal. Yes. A great example is like the gas deal. And by the way, I think it was totally inappropriate. For maybe tell our listeners what the gas deal was. The gas deal was about um, the maritime border between Lebanon and Israel, where natural gas was discovered off the Mediterranean coast, and there was a deal negotiated for who would take what gas, who would be able to drill, who, what type of money would be split based on the profits. And many people say that Lapid did not negotiate a deal that was the best thing that Israel could get. And Lapid is kind of accused, or not accused, but like is said to have wanted to achieve this type of diplomatic victory in the short time that he was this caretaker prime minister, which in many people's opinion is not something that a caretaker prime minister that's in transition should be doing with such long-term implications. Right. Uh, I think he also just wanted to do what the Biden administration expected of him. Probably. And that I, was the deal that they wanted. I, I mean, listen, getting back to what I was saying about the foreign policy, you know, one of the first things that Trump would do when he would have his first meeting with a leader, he would say, what do you need to become economically independent? What do you need from us so that we don't have to give you money anymore? And I think that's a huge reason why the United States is, is where it's at. I think that they, you know, they went from leading from the front and getting into conflicts and conflicts that really they should not have been getting into, i.e. Iraq. They did not execute it properly. They, the, the whole big mistake was disbanding the military and not maintaining their pay, which then led to the creation of ISIS, okay, which is extremely important, okay? But, you know, they also, like I said, started leading from the back and wanted things like Iran to become a major power. And they, they started making decisions that were really, at the start of 2008, not the same direction that every administration had gone prior. And I think that that started a counter-cultural, revolutionary type of socialist way of looking at the United States internally as an evil empire, not externally, mm -hmm. which is very different. And, and I, I don't think that you would have Bernie Sanders, AOC, or the squad, or any of this you know, entanglement with the BDS unit. I think there's a lot to unpack there. I know that's yeah. not everything you want to talk about. No, today, no, but, no. That's, but there's a whole... There's and, a, and it's something that's not discussed. And I try to discuss it on my ILTV show mm -hmm. all the time, especially when I bring on experts in Iran. Mm -hmm. Like, because, because Iran and what has happened with Iran over the last 20 years now, since 2008, we're coming on like, what, 20 years, 15 years? That is a great example of why America has the problems that they have. 
I think you and I have some very uh, foundational disagreements in our assumptions coming into this conversation. So for us to really unpack this would be an entire episode. I yeah, I mean like it's it's you know one of the things that you and I have always done when we're together is talk for hours and argue and everybody else just kind of listens when we go at it which is which is fun i mean it's uh you know if you can't unpack these ideas you can't understand them and you can't create your own point of view in my opinion if that makes sense so the way i look at zionism is it was a very important link in a very long chain of Jewish liberation movements. Mm -hmm. I think it's incredibly anachronistic to say that Yudama Kabi was a Zionist, or Rabbi Akiva was a Zionist, or Shlomo Malcha was a Zionist. Jesus was a Zionist. Or Jesus was a Zionist. He was definitely a Zionist. I think it's about as an... Anybody that wants to fight for Jewish independence technically falls under the well, realm of that, Zionism. So, so that's where I'm disagreeing with you. I'm actually saying, no, that's not true. Zionism refers to a very specific movement, a very specific set of ideas, a very specific organizational framework that began in the late 1800s and basically set out to solve some very specific problems that the Jewish people in Europe were having. Uh, and that that's what Zionism was organized around. I would even argue that during the Zionist era, there were groups trying to advance Jewish liberation who were not Zionists, like the Lehi, the Fighters for the Freedom of Israel. They came out on a number of occasions and said, we are not a Zionist organization. Zionism is like that Chaim Weizmann thing going on over there. We are an indigenous people's liberation movement, nothing to do with Zionism. I think also Ruf Kuk. I mean, they never actually <laughs> said we're an indigenous people's yeah. liberation movement. That sure. the specific yeah, verbiage yeah. was not. Yeah, here. I would uh, direct you to the, to, to the speeches of Eliyahu I mean, listen, you had, you had a Lehi fighter who became a prime minister. I mean, like, it's, yeah. uh, I, I would disagree that the majority of the Lehi did not consider themselves as part of the Zionist movement. They just saw themselves they, as doing their own thing. They saw and, and by the way, so did Begin and the Revisionists. No, I mean, they, the, but, the no division, but they continue. The difference is Begin and the Revisionists. First of all, I would argue that Begin is not actually a revisionist. He's actually something in between the Sternists and the revisionists. But I would say that Begin, the Etzel, the Irgun Svalumi, and the revisionist movement, and Betar, all consistently referred to themselves as Zionist. They self-identified as Zionist. Right, but you right. have to... How but, did that but, movement, did but how did that movement emerge? How did that movement emerge? That movement emerged. Mm -hmm. it, it emerged when he proposed Uganda, and it was because, no, you couldn't have Zionism or... Ju you know, there was an argument early on whether or not they were going to call it Judeanism or Zionism. Okay, and I feel like if it was called Judeanism, mm -hmm. we would be having a completely different argument right now. Well, maybe there's, that's like, a third thing. So maybe I would argue there is a Zionist narrative, there is a Palestinian narrative, and there is a Judean narrative, and there are three distinct ways of understanding the last hundred years in this country. I, I don't know if I totally agree with that, and I'll tell you why. Okay, and, and I would, would you would you call the, the, the Maccabees yeah. were the minority yes. at the time. Yes. But their narrative mm -hmm. is part of the Jewish narrative. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. The Zionists were the minority at the time. Mm -hmm. And their narrative and that story is part of the Jewish story. I don't think it's anything separate. My point going back to Uganda. Wait a minute. Hold on. The main thing was that Jabotinsky, whose hero, his hero was Herzl. Mm -hmm. Okay. He was like, we can't do this. This is like, I have to separate from this. Yeah. And like. Herzl ended up walking that back. But that's where the revisionist I, movement comes yes. from. Well, I would argue that Jabotinsky is the ideological successor of Herzl and Nordau. Yeah. He is the rightful yeah. ideological successor of Herzl and Nordau. 
Um, I would say that revisionist Zionism is the closest of all the many streams that developed to Herzl's political Zionism. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say... They had that, very similar outlooks. Yes, yeah, yeah. But, but, and they come from very similar backgrounds. Yeah. But I would say that all of them, all of the Zionists were for the most part functioning within a European ideological paradigm, the paradigm of liberalism, like the ideological paradigm of liberalism and the nationalisms of Europe at the time. Uh, I think that uh, you see something very different in the writings of Rav Kook and uh, uh, certainly in the thoughts of Yair Stern and his successors. These groups, uh, Rav Kook has a famous quote where he says, Zionism is too shallow an ideology to sustain a living nation, let alone revive a dead one. Um, he's talking about Zionism as something that he's removed from, that he's supporting. He, he was he was consistently supporting Zionism. I mean, like the framework of our kingdoms in ancient times were mm. the exact same thing. I, I mean, were like, they? they, they I mean, like they, we were operating uh, uh, amongst sets of tribes and, mm. and kingdoms because there weren't nation states at that time. You know, I, I mean, mm. like, and we wanted to be like everybody else. And that was what ended up establishing our borders mm. and allowing us to build the temple. So, I mean, like, well, I, think, well, I would say, no, 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 no I would on, say that's I think, true. I think for, ignoring, that's true for the kingdom of Israel, not for the kingdom I, of Judah. And that's I, the difference. I, and that's I think, why I'm, and by the way, that's why I like your, your wording. Your wordage is good. But ignoring, Judean, ignoring, Judeanism might be no, a good word. But, but ignoring the fact that our culture, mm-hmm from the giving of the Torah at Sinai mm-hmm. has affected the world. Nobody, you can't see what I'm doing, unfortunately, because our listeners are not in the studio, but, but yeah, you know, our, our Torah affects the world. Thus that effect hits us back. Okay. And it goes back and forth and it goes back and forth. And that's why I don't believe that like European liberalism in its classic form, mm-hmm. okay, not like liberalism the way that we define it today. No, liberal ideology would, yeah, would, would, right. is a bad thing, and I don't think that it's a bad thing. I mean, what, why, why were they burning Maimonides' Guide to Perplex? Because it was the first time that he was comparing and contrasting Aristotelian thought and Judean thought, mm-hmm. and mixing them together and proving that bringing different thought processes together, even though he he ends up saying, you know, this is the way that it is, and God created the world in seven days, and you know, whatever. Like it's very important to understand the importance of the give and the take with the rest of the world, and, and then yeah, also but, but how there, we but react. there's a way that we do that. There's a way to do that, and there's a long history. And this is one of the reasons why on the show we always kind of instead of using these foreign concepts like right and left, liberal, conservative, secular, religious to frame our people and the socio-cultural and political differences between us, it's much more helpful to use the tribal identities. And historically speaking. The, one of the main differences between our two leadership tribes, Yudah and Yosef, is really the fact that Yudah is much more focused on what makes us different, unique, separate from the nations. Yosef is much more interested in what we share in common with them, especially the dominant civilization of any given period. And But, but we see that Yudah, because of who Yudah is, he's actually more capable of having a healthy relationship with the outside world. I'll give you an example. In the same parsha. Uh, Parshat Vayeshev, we see that Yosef resists having sexual relations with the wife of Potiphar, with mm-hmm. the wife of his master in Egypt, mm-hmm. right? And that's a huge deal. We see that as Yosef rising up and resisting something that would have destroyed him, mm-hmm. right? In the very same parsha, Yehuda has sexual relations with his daughter-in-law Tamar, who he mm-hmm. thinks is a sex worker, right? His daughter-in-law Tamar that he thinks... Is a sex or I thought he thought it was his other wife. No, okay, I didn't realize. Okay, okay, has, that he thinks yeah, is a you, sex you can take another okay. look at the parsha. Okay, right? great. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, no, 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 I'm, I'm, yeah. 
That's not good. It is where David Melech comes from. Like yeah. David Melech emerges from the from that lineage, but it's it's not considered a good thing that he I did. He emerges from from Ruth. Also, there, yeah. there's there's many oh, places. It's, it's the, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm following you. Now. Yeah. Sorry. So, so and the whole point is that the Mashiach can be found in something that isn't necessary. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Kabbalah. Well, that, well, yeah. The, yeah. There's a lot to unpack if we're having. You know, we can do a yeah, lot yeah. of great shows. Yeah, yeah. But, I just want to make sure. I was, but, yeah. but but here you see, I'll I'll fast forward a little because I think that. The, the difference between Yudah falling in that way and Yosef potentially falling in that way is huge. Mm-hmm. Yudah comes back from that very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see it, you know, uh, you can look at it later with their descendants. You have a king from the tribe of Yehuda, Shlomo, mm-hmm. Solomon, uh, who has a relationship with the king of Phoenicia. Mm-hmm. And in that relationship, the king of Phoenicia donates cedar trees for the construction of our temple in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. right? Meaning the relationship leads to them contributing to our mission mm-hmm. and to our values. Mm-hmm. Now, Achav, who is a descendant of Yosef, who is a very powerful king of Israel, mm-hmm. right? He marries the daughter of a Phoenician king, mm-hmm. Yzevel, and that actually destroys him and his kingdom. Mm-hmm. Meaning, so the relationship, even though it's Yosef, who desires a relationship with the outside world and desperately wants to find Israel's place among the nations, it's actually Yudah who has the strong and deeply rooted Jewish identity that makes him capable of actually having a healthy relationship with the outside world that contributes to our agenda and doesn't just end up diluting our identity. Yeah, but I, I don't, I'm, I'm failing to see like the connection between like the label of Zionism uh, that you're talking so about. I, I would, like, I, okay. I, I would say... Well, first can, of all, can I answer the oh, connection? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'd say, first of all, Zionism is understood from a Kabbalistic perspective, uh, certainly based on the teachings of the Gona Vilna and Rav Kook and Manitou. Zionism is the movement of Mashiach ben Yosef. It's the messianic movement of Yosef. Uh, and it's basically when all of Yosef's many incredible talents like to impact the material world, to build economies, to build armies, to build states, to build the infrastructure for states, that is dedicated towards Jewish liberation. That, that is, that's the revolutionary movement of Yosef, and that's why I think it's so important for us. It's not only semantic. That's why it's important to me to be able to acknowledge that Zionism ended because in doing so, we understand that the role of Yosef as taking the lead, there's still, Yosef is still important, we still want Yosef on board with where we're going, but this era, this chapter of Jewish history where Yosef has to take the lead in returning us to our land, reviving our language, building the infrastructure for a state, that era might have ended, and now it's time for some new movement that is not coming from the force of Yosef to kind of step in and take the steering wheel and move us forward. I just, I don't, I, I, I Yosef I, being Tel Aviv. Yeah, no, I, and, I get and the it, danger, I get it, but, but, but the, the danger the, the, if we don't do it, hold on. Yeah, what? but the danger if we don't do it is you see there's a dialectic relationship between the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, and Zionism, right? On the one hand, Zionism is a very clear rejection of the rebranding of Jewish identity that came with the Haskalah, saying we're no longer a people, now we're just a religion, like Germans of the Jewish religion. French I mean, that was a portion yeah. of thinkers. Th- yes. And like also the Haredi movement is a complete... The, you know, the Haredi I, movement is, a, I would say Orthodox Judaism is a product of the Haskalah as well. No, I, I would say her, what is considered Haredi all of it, is a all product of it. Reform, of, Orthodox, I, I, all of it. The, the, the very idea that we are yes, a religion I, yeah. with denominations... That is, that is a... Yes, that is a Haskalah. Right, that that yeah. is the colonization of our identity. Yeah. That we think of ourselves as a religion with denomination. Jews of the Mosaic persuasion. Right. I totally so, get it. Or so, German, Germans of the Mosaic persuasion. So Yosef suddenly 
goes from being Moskilim, goes from being proponents of the Haskalah, wanting to be Germans, wanting to be French nationalists, whatever, to suddenly saying, wait a minute, we have a Jewish nationalism. Just like Aipai or, or Sammy, we can, we can have our own Jewish fraternity, like their fraternities, but it's a Jewish one. And then the next step is to say, wait a minute, why are we even doing their thing? Even if we're doing their thing our way, maybe we have our own thing we can do. And what happens when you don't progress to that stage is there's this backsliding. Now that Zionism achieved its goals, the force of Yosef within Israeli society seems to want to drag us towards being an Am Kecholamim, wants to force us to become a nation like all other nations, or a normal nation, right? There are a lot of people, and this has been expressed at many of the protests against judicial reform, there are a lot of people in this country who want Israel to be a normal nation. Meaning, I mean, I want Israel to be a normal well, country, a okay, normal functioning country. Sure, like, but but you know, when I say a normal nation, and, and you, I want, wait, a minute, I want to go back. You might be I, in this category to, too. To, no, I'm not. But we need to go. You're back. also hold Yosef. On, hold on. You might be a right wing Yosef Jew. We need to go back. You are actually a right wing Yosef Jew. Okay, okay. Thank I mean, you no? for labeling me. I appreciate. Meaning that. you're a Zionist, right? We need to go back, okay? Because you keep talking about Zionism being over for something new. As far as I'm concerned. Sovereignty hasn't been concluded, okay, over parts of this country. Job of Zionism. Every single Jew in the world does not speak Hebrew. Job mm -hmm. of Zionism, okay? So many people do not know who they are and where they come mm -hmm. from, both culturally, spiritually, mm -hmm. Kabbalistically, religiously, whatever effing word you want to use for the semantic of it. Mm -hmm. The fact is, is that the Zionist revolution, okay, was an individual revolution that would then infect the greater people, which was this person who was like, I am not going to be this weak Jew anymore. And by the way, I, I consider being fully assimilated weak. Okay. Cause, cause there was two types. There was the Neb intellectual and then the Neb rabbi. Okay. Like Bialik's, you know, city of slaughter really, I, I mean, if any of the listeners have not read the poem city of slaughter by Nathan Bialik, by Natan Bialik, you should, because it, it really does make a, excellent picture of the situation of, of the Jewish situation during the Kishnev programs and the programs leading up to what became the Holocaust. But to say that like this thing is over because X, Y, and Z has happened or hasn't happened, I think is just totally incorrect. Well, and tell I, and me I, this, as a Zionist, what are the goals of Jewish history now? What are the next objectives of Jewish liberation for our chapter of Jewish history? Mental or physical or spiritual? Uh, any. Well, I mean, I think having borders is a huge part of the next 50 years and solidified borders so that there is no more border dispute. Whether that looks like the entire biblical land of Israel or, or something different, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not in the security cabinet. I'm not on any negotiating team for the Abraham Accords. Um, but I, I think there are certain things that have to happen. And I think one of them is the the sovereignty of the Temple Mount has the status quo has to be finalized and changed so that every single human being can allowed to be up there. I think that's a huge piece of the puzzle that hasn't been done. I, so I hold think for our listeners, let's just yeah. bullet point this. I want to say number one, defining the state of Israel's borders. Number two, I, no, you don't, 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 no, don't, don't. I don't want to give you. I, I want no, 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 because it's all things. Goals. Number two, fine. The speaking of Hebrew amongst all Jews. Okay, globally, mm -hmm. okay, which is extremely important for Jews in the diaspora because without their language, mm -hmm. okay, they are not an ethnic minority. Okay, they are part of the greater whole. And the biggest problem right now in Jewish identity, expression, uh, education is that 
we are they're not coming into the classroom or the fraternity so to speak being like we're an ethnic minority i want my culture i want to fully and authentically express it and by the way they can't even begin to get into the books and the texts that are the foundations of judaism or, or what people call judaism right. okay? social construct that right. kind of came out of I, 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 I hate that word judaism yeah. you can't find it anywhere in rabbinic literature i agree it's it's yeah. the civilization of israel mm -hmm. okay the civilization of the jewish people mm -hmm. you can't even begin to delve into that if you don't have the hebrew skills mm -hmm. okay and that is extremely important for seeing the world what why did i say the martial living was the most important thing i ever did because it put the lenses of jewish history on my eyes mm -hmm. so that for then on i saw the world and world history as a jew mm -hmm. number three giving every single jew mm -hmm. The lenses of Jewish history. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's actually something we do very well. The vision movement. I'd say if we're good at two things, we're good at a inspiring young Jews to live in their own people's ideological paradigm, to like look at the world through the lens of Jewish history and Jewish identity, uh, and really want to be part of that story. Really wanting to be characters in the story. You have to people. be. If you yeah. don't create that, yeah. But no one does that better than us. That, that that's what we do at Vision. No one can do that better than us. And the, and the other thing I think we're doing better than everybody else, to be honest, is our ability to communicate our people's story to people who are not us and don't understand us. My, my point being is that there are many things that have not been finished. The economy is not solidified. Our quantitative military edge is still being solidified. Mm -hmm. You know, I, you want to talk about the next stage of Zionism? I want to talk about peace with Saudi Arabia to get to that next stage. Let me ask you a question. Wait, hold on. What you're talking about in mm -hmm. terms of a next stage, mm -hmm. I think is messianic. And I don't okay. think there's anything wrong with it. How would you define that word? I, I, messianic? Me, yeah, what does that mean, messianic? I'll give you a definition, but you go first. I, I, I would say wanting of an age that is golden, where there are no choices other than good or better, where 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 there is some type of supernatural element to everyday life, where mm. where in a realistic type of way, where you know science has provided us the ability to live much longer and cure diseases and hunger and things like that, where a temple for all people stands in Jerusalem, mm. where you know. Basically, a lot of the things that we've encountered I, I, over the last I would, two times. I, I would define messianic more simply than that. I would say messianic is the belief that the conditions exist to make the world better. Sure. Here in this I, world. I mean, that's Wh whereas I would, say, I would say Christianity is not messianic, but Marxism is. Uh, no, Christianity is no, 100% Christ No, Christianity, Christianity claims that this world can't be fixed. Uh, they, 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 they claim that it can't be fixed, but they also claim that it will be fixed. <laughs> like their version of... The messianic era is the rapture and then the righteous living on earth in the kingdom no, but it's of God. not this world anymore. Right. right. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, some, yeah, somewhat, but I, I mean, they're, they're semantics. But like, mm -hmm. my, my point being is that there is still a job to do. The ideology of Zionism was about assisting God in the work of redeeming the people in okay. a way. And, and, and so, taking it upon great. yourselves. No, but that great. is still so, something that is being fine. taught. Well, hold on. Hold yeah. on, hold on. Let, let's. I'm, I'm not trying to give you a hard time. No, I, but, no, but, but I this is. Good. I think this is good. I, I experience you as a as a very flammable soul, so, <laughs> like like someone who who really is deeply connected to the liberation of his people. And 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 brother, what you said of like like that was very important. You, I never went on March of the Living. I never went to Poland. I never saw the death camps. And I have no intention of doing it. But I can appreciate how that would give somebody the lens of Jewish history. 
I, I think there are other ways to for sure. lens, yeah. But but the, you could you could realize the lenses of Jewish history walking through the hills that we're sitting in. Yeah. Like without question. Really, for just me, really, it just happened to be that. Yeah. So so I, I think that's great. And that's really what we set out to do with the vision movement. We're primarily an educational movement and we want to put more of the next generation of Jews, the millennials and Gen Z Jews, into the psychological You want them wearing the glasses. Yeah, I want them. I want them looking at the world through their own people's. I, I want them to at least be able to understand that there are different ideological lenses through which to look at the world. There is liberalism. There is Islam. There is Marxism. There's also your people's lens, the lens of your ancestors, of your prophets and sages. And there's also a goal to Jewish history. And I want young Jews to want to see themselves as active participants in their people's story. Now. Yeah, but okay, the ideology that gave birth to everything that you're saying is Zionism. Maybe, maybe. So you couldn't you couldn't well, do that without no, 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 Zionism. No, I, I, I'm very appreciative of Zionism. I think that Zionism got us here. I think there are, there are a lot of things that need to be corrected from Zionism, especially in regards to Palestinian issues. But I think that for the most part, Zionism was a very effective, very powerful, um, and and I think that one of the unavoidable side effects of being such a powerful revolutionary movement is that a lot of humans got hurt in the process. That's just kind of what happens. You know, the old saying, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. Like, could there have been a different way of doing things? Maybe. But what happened is what happened. Now, I, now, I, I mean, like, I think you okay. put too much blame on us for that. Well, I, okay. I, I think that there are certain things that, no, no the truth is I, I actually don't really. I I'm try to be very understanding. I understand the position the Jewish people were in. I understand what the Zionists were trying to achieve. Um, I also understand that there was a not only a tremendous miscommunication and misunderstanding between the Zionists and the Palestinians, I also think that that was partially uh, engineered and certainly exploited by the British Empire who wanted to stay here. And I think that it was in British interest to keep the Jews and Palestinians uh, at each other's throats in order to allow them to rule here long term. I mean, I think if you take a look at the history of the Middle East, mm -hmm. the British were wrong and the French were right. And the, the British bet on a Sunni majority that wasn't really a majority. They were just one of the many minorities. Because if you look at pre-World War One Middle East, the Middle East was a mosaic of minorities. Mm -hmm. Christians, Shiites, Druze, you know, um, Jews, Berbers, Muslims, Sufis, Alawites. Hey, I, it's I, going, like, it's it goes going, on. Yeah. The, little, yeah, the, list, yeah. the list goes on. I'm... I'm trying to think of um, the uh, Kurds. Mm -hmm. Wow, it took me 15 minutes to get the Kurds out of my head. Um, you know, that was the big mistake of the British. Okay, they they wanted to set up a nation-state system that was based on a, a, a Sunni majority when there wasn't really a majority. And, and that's the problem. And I, I don't think that you can ever uh, underestimate the the sheer ideological force of, of the need for Sunni supremacy amongst the Sunnis and the Sunni leaders. Okay, and well, I, I that, think, that aside, I, I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole. I want to ask you a, a okay. specific question. Zionism 100 years ago yeah. was a set of ideologies that were aspiring to major social and political change and were therefore able to speak directly to young Jews about their conditions and inspire them towards action for changing those conditions. Okay, right? Okay. Yes. Now, that being said, today, when you look at young diaspora Jews, uh -huh. you see that not a large percentage of them are being ignited 
with a Zionist fervor, right? Meaning, meaning you see that that is lacking. And I, I would argue that one of the reasons that is lacking is because Zionism achieved its social and political change. And when a movement achieves its, no matter how big in scope, when a movement achieves the changes it's fighting to achieve, it basically becomes a defender of the status quo. It just tries to defend its past achievements. And that's where Zionism seems to be today. Even to most Israelis, I think the majority of Israelis who self-identify as Zionist basically define that as a mangal, a barbecue on Yom Atzma'ot, and miluim, reserve duty once a year. That's basically what Zionism means to the majority of self-identified Zionists living in Israel today. I don't think anybody is really relating to it as a movement that it's aspiring to major social and political change. So here's the reason why. I mean, there's a very easy mm-hmm. answer to that. Okay. Look at the organized Jewish community mm-hmm. in America. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Like, you, you want an answer to why Zionism has issues in America? It's because... Zionism I, I, is the JNF. I, I don't know. That's Zionism. The JNF is Zionism. No. I, I, listen, it's not just the JNF. It's the Federations. It's mm-hmm. the Hillels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the... Um, right. All that. It's it's FIDF. It's United Hatzalah. It's, it's, it's the Hollywood-ized... I guess you could say the the glamorize mm-hmm. the the glamorification of Jewish American life mm-hmm. and wanting to be American. Mm-hmm. Okay, and if and also just take a look at like you know the early reform movement's response in America to Zionism it was extremely negative. Mm-hmm. The reform movement didn't didn't become pro-Israel until 1948. Mm-hmm. Okay, a majority. I mean, listen, the American Jewish community couldn't even save European Jewry. Okay, because mm-hmm. they were so scared of ruffling the feathers of dual okay? loyalty and, and, and of dual loyalty right. and, and by being the way, Jews for if any of you watch Wine with Adam this week, we released an episode with Jonathan Pollard where we discussed this entire thing about how the Jewish community reacted to what happened with him versus how they should have maybe reacted towards the government and not John personally. Right. No, I, I think and, that but, there's a strong argument that can be but, made but, that Jonathan Pollard corrected the sin of American Jews during the Holocaust. I, I don't even want to go there. Like, that's not even where I want to go. My Here's my point. It was not in the interests of American Jewish communal organizations that are large, that collect hundreds of millions of dollars a year mm-hmm. to create a new generation of people that would end up end up leaving America, mm-hmm. yeah. who would be developed as full Jews, who would go to synagogue and actually enjoy it, or go to Hebrew school and actually get something out of it. Okay, what young Jew wants to go to Hebrew school? None of them. You want to know why? Because they don't actually learn things that they can apply to their everyday life. They're not taught conversational Hebrew. They're taught how to pray in a language that they don't even understand. Thus, they can't even understand what it is when you say the awesome words of the Sidur. Okay, R.A. Kaplan talks about that a lot, where if you can't understand the awesomeness of the Hebrew, you cannot actually have the meditative experience of a real daven, okay, which is the Jewish community in America is robbed of that. Okay, all the things that actually happened in the diaspora, you know, South American Jews, are very different from North American Jews, and they experience their Zionism completely different. It's a very Zionist community. They all learn Hebrew. Same with the Canadians. The, you know, the the I want to I want to have this in a North American context. What I'm about to say, specifically the Continental Forty Eight. Mm-hmm. Okay, the American Jewish community did whatever they could to not be a minority unless it suited they, them. They wanted to be white. They wanted to be a part of the American community. They wanted to be white passing. Okay. I did not grow up in a house where I was taught I was white. I grew up in a house where I was taught I was Jewish. Mm-hmm. Okay, the majority of my friends would always say, "You're not white, you're Jewish." You know, it's so to me that was very clear, also because of the education I had. 
But the reason why you have the criticisms and the criticisms that you have, mm -hmm. the points that you are bringing up, they're not incorrect. But it isn't Zionism's fault. Okay, I don't know about it's, fault. It's, Zionism it, did a great but, thing for us. Yeah, but it's not. It, it got doesn't us here. Mean that, it doesn't mean that Zionism is over. It means that Zionism's job is still not done. Like I, I think a lot of things that you're bringing up mm -hmm. are things that have to happen after every single Jew can even engage in a Hebrew conversation or, or debate. Are we supposed to wait for that? No, we're we... supposed to actively do. Why? 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 So maybe hold that... on, hold on. Why? Tell me this, okay? Mm -hmm. There are anti-Semitic attacks all over the United States right now. JCCs have been threatened to bomb. People are running, ramming cars into synagogues. We've got non-Jewish security, mm -hmm. okay, at synagogues. Why? was the reaction of the Jewish community, we don't know what to do, and not, we need to bring self-defense to the Jewish community, okay? Why, okay, has Hebrew language, which is a proven thing, the greatest gift that you can give a child or a baby is a second language. Why, if all of these kids are going to preschool and day schools and, and, and Hebrew schools, why are we not heavily focusing on giving our children the gift that all of the immigrants had when they came to America, which is having multiple languages, which is what separated us from the rest of the people. You know, it, it, it's it, it's not a Zionism thing. It's actually an internal Jewish communal experience in America, which, by the way, is very similar to every single exilic experience we have. We have a group of people that want to maintain their identity, want to maintain their Judeanism, okay, their their Israelism, their Israelite identity, and then we have those who want to be Greeks, and then we have those who understand both. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. And, yeah. I, and I think that that is like, you know, I think the middle ground, obviously coming from my point of view, is, is the most important. The embracing of both secular and Jewish culture and, you know, finding the middle ground between them, I think is extremely when you, When you say, hold on, when you say secular culture, what you really mean is Western culture, right? I... I I don't mean Western culture in terms of the actual direction of the West, because if we were, if this was 600 years ago mm -hmm. or, 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 or 500 years ago, Western culture would actually be exactly where we're sitting right now during the golden age of Islam and Spain, because this is where Western thought grew. Okay. Remember, we don't actually have original translations of Greek thought. We no, have them in Arabic. Well, what I'm asking you is yeah. really, what I'm asking you really is when you say the word secular or when that word is used in Israeli society, yeah. what, what it really means is to be like the dominant civilization of our generation. Like that is like the paradigm. That is like I, what's I the prioritization the, of values. I think that like for those, like the, I, I mean, I think it's very important. I right. don't think it's, I don't think it's something to show. And I think the Rambam thought it was important. Mm -hmm. You know, it's how you get to the end and, and, and what, pieces of mm -hmm. your Jewish identity do you shed in order for secularism or Westernism is not really a good thing. Like well, you, you well would, be... you, would you see efforts to make the state of Israel a nation like European nations, an assimilationist impulse? I, th I think that there's definitely an argument for that, mm -hmm. but I also think there is an argument for the need of a different type of bureaucracy other than what is described in the Bible, which is that of a kingdom. And I think that like we wanted a okay, king, like we wanted a the, king 3,000 years ago. So you're saying ago, yes or no to my question? I, I'm saying like 50% yes, 50% no, because I definitely think what you're saying holds a lot of mm -hmm. water, that there are many people in this country mm -hmm. that do not want any form of Jewish identity to exist or permeate in any way, shape, or on form. On the national level. On the national level, which is what makes it, us who we are. And, and it, that's and, the problem. And, it, and it's not because they're trying to be more like Sri Lanka. It's because they'd like to be more like Europe and the United States. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I and I also think that the thing that makes us special mm -hmm. is that we're not both of those places, mm -hmm. but we appreciate and can appreciate 
things like those places. Sure, sure. But, I love but, but nothing you're, more. You're getting way beyond my question. Meaning, I, I'm I, sorry. I, I, go, I, I go deep. I, I go mean, deep. No, you and I agree on a lot of things. I, I would say, look, what's more fun than coffee and Nevetsetek? Like, like, what's more beautiful than that? You know, that's what I mean. Like, it's, it's okay to have a little bit of this outside culture of of cafe culture and and I mean the the funness and the openness of a non-judgmental society, which sometimes comes with religion or orthodoxy or 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 you know there is some tension between you know the free will of wanting to live your life however you want and living your life within the well i I think you're talking about the the group you're talking about that wants that quote-unquote fun unrestrained or even what you said non-judgmental culture is that's also a religion and people are very religiously trying to defend that the the problem is is that they are not steeped in anything judaic and and once you become maybe the problem is when we look at our own culture as a religion which i know you push back against i hate that right we are not a religion and that is a western framing that's a a social concept that's a western social that's a, that's like the the shackling mm-hmm. of like the Jewish mind. No, no, but so, but but then there are ramifications to that. Yeah, the, the ramifications to that are understanding that a lot of the things that we like, like there was something you said early in the show. I forget what it was. You were saying something about not religious, not political, but ju- like something about like the work you're doing. There, there's no you want people to engage. So I not, try to explain right. that my work is cultural, but yeah. like everything okay. has a steeping from so, right. So what I would say is the Jewish people are not a, we're not a nation, we're not a religion, we're not an ethnic group, we're not a culture, we're so much more than that. We predate all those social constructs. We are a civilization, like the Aztecs. We are a civilization. Well, yes. We have a spiritual component, we have a national component, we have a territorial component, we have a ritual component, a legal component, but we're much more than the sum of those parts. And I would say that uh, one of the problems that we have today is when we think of many aspects of Jewish culture and Jewish identity, we compartmentalize them in the box of religion. Yes, I I 1000% agree with you. It is one of the biggest problems that we have in terms of putting Mm -hmm. the lenses of Jewish history on young people. Like like, like if you want to break everything down that we have discussed, Mm -hmm. okay, the problem comes from the reform movement and the Haskalah, okay, and the emergence of the secular versus Haredi or Orthodox schism, mm-hmm. okay, of religion. Because mm-hmm. because I, I truly do believe, you know, if you read Rabbi Sachs, okay, who is a great rabbi, is a Khalifracha, okay, who, who, I mean, like, wrote some amazing things on Jewish identity, he constantly used the word Judaism and religion. And I hated when he would do that, and it was the biggest thing that I have against how he would articulate things, but outside of when he would use those specific words his work was really beautiful and any listener i suggest reading letter in the scroll which was an amazing book or not in god's name which again so, is so a must read where, but, where i would but, disagree with no you. but wait hold on but let me finish my, my point being though is that when you take away the uniqueness of what it is to be a jew the emblem of eternity okay and you put it into the box of religion, mm-hmm. which is a man-made box, you take away every single thing that does make us uniquely different from the rest of the human experience. Okay, so I would say it's not just the reform; it's the orthodox too. I would say. Yeah, no, I agree. Right. Yeah, I, I think that once the Haskalah transformed Jewish identity, rebranded Jewish identity from that of an ancient civilization to a religion called Judaism. 
um, there became denominations of it. And just and, and you could argue, look, I, I would say the what became known as Orthodox Judaism zealously fought for the legal, for the ritual, and perhaps even spiritual components of our identity, but they completely dropped the ball on the national and territorial components of our yeah, identity. Yeah, I, I mean, look, like, how does it make sense that you have somebody like Naturi Karta, you know, promoting what they promote? How does it, how, how are we in a position where Haredim in, in, in Israel say, like, we need to be praying instead of being trained as soldiers. Like, there, there's uh, there's nothing contradictory right. to learning Torah and, and being no, trained no, no. as the, a soldier. The opposite. It's like, mitzvah. It's, it's, exactly. It's mitzvah. And, and, and that, that, you know, listen, I think, like, one of the main things that you and I are kind of tiptoeing around is that the fact that there is a major need for what Echad Am referred to as a spiritual revival. Okay, and at the beginning of the Zionist movement, that was like the big thing, spiritual revival versus building the state. Okay, and like Herzl was right that you needed to build the state before you had the spiritual revival. And Ahad Am was right that you needed a spiritual revival, but he didn't understand that you needed a state. Mm -hmm. Okay, and if those two, I always say, if those two would have gotten along, we'd have a very different Zionist movement. Without the ideological understanding of what it is to really be a Jew. to, To be fair... Herzl died young without ever really completing his it, process and, and of that, figuring out what he believed. Exactly. And, and, and it's very important to understand that Herzl became much more observant mm-hmm. and religious in terms of his observance, like pro- orthopraxy. Like he, he, you know, he went from having a Christmas tree in his home to taking it out and writing about the glory of the menorah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, which is, by the way, it's so unfair to quote Herzl out of context. Mm-hmm. Like, like you, you have to quote Herzl based on 11 years of writing and context and understanding that his mind was being changed all the time, which is why you really can't hold it against him for the Uganda proposal. Or anything. Or anything. Like he did a great thing, but he he was in a, he was in a constant process of growth and, and it was a very dynamic process that ended abruptly at the age of 44. Uh, So really he never got the opportunity to fully realize what he believed. Because of this religion bullshit, excuse my language to the, to the listeners. Okay. That is our biggest, like before even going about the next stage of Zionism or like the next thing, the biggest thing that we have to fix is this religion crap okay this 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 well okay this, so, this, so, this, so hold this, on hold on, hold on. Of, of putting you in a box mm-hmm. and putting me in a box that i'm a part of some religious group okay so, i come from the land of judea mm-hmm. okay like my ancestors were scattered all over the world and maintained what herzl referred to as the faith of our fathers because that's what our civilization civilization was reduced to mm-hmm. a portable civilization. That's the truth. It's a yeah, portable civilization I, I mean, like we, we, that 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 our sages created when they saw our civilization being destroyed by the Romans. Yeah. Now, um, so one of the one of the goals, one of the objectives of this chapter of Jewish history that I've identified is decolonizing Jewish identity, and I think that means something very specific. Yeah, I always I always really like that term. Well, right. It, it's like applying. I, 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 it's it's a good. But but if we were to uh, apply post-colonial tools to the identity of the Jewish people and the historic experiences of the Jewish people, we would be able to unpack a lot of the things that we've been able to unpack on this show. One of the hardest and most depressing things in modern academia today mm-hmm. is the definition of the Jewish people being outside of what's called intersectionality when our identity itself is intersectional and we are really the basis of what is intersectionality. And and the fact that young Jews cannot explain that 
okay, is very unfortunate because it's one of the reasons why we are seeing the situation that we see on college campuses. I'd, I'd say more than that. I'd say that, first of all, right now they, there is a critical mass of young Jews, um, college students, let's say, who are deeply connected to Jewish identity, Jewish history, the land of Israel, sometimes even Torah, um, but completely blind to the systems of oppression that exist and the sufferings of other marginalized groups. Are, are you referring to just Palestinians there? or No. Okay. no. But then you have a larger number of Jews who are showing up for every oppressed people, but have no Jewish identity and ah, no connection to their own yeah. to, to their own land, to their own culture, to their own history. That's it's, the result. Right. A lot of what we try to do with Vision is create a critical mass of young Jews who are coming with their full selves, who are coming deeply rooted in their own identity and their own story, showing up for others. And I think part of the problem is every time you look at a pro-Israel demonstration in the United States, you will see the presence of American flags there. And that's the reason why Jews aren't part of the intersectional left, because for the most part, the pro-Israel community has decided that we are on the side of the empire. We don't call it the empire, and we don't recognize what it does to the rest I mean, of the world. But we are, and there's nothing well, wrong No, 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 we should not be, because Israel, like, I, I, I would say that- no, you and I have a fundamental- Okay, so, so I, would, I would say it like this. I would say the way anti-Semitism systemically has functioned for many centuries already is it forces the Jews into a situation where we feel dependent on the Gentile power structure for our survival and we're willing to participate in the oppression of others in order to maintain that status. Judah, for, Judah Maccabee was totally okay with that. No, 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 no. No, he, no, he was not. He was fighting a guerrilla war and needed to leverage the imperialist rivalries of foreign powers. That, that's, Who, and, and, and those foreign powers were doing what to other people? But that's not what I'm talking about here. I'll give you a concrete example if okay. you'd like. I'd say that the Jew in feudalist Europe was neither the lord or the peasant. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And But he would often get pushed into roles of collecting taxes, mm -hmm. of being a money lender, um, and therefore he was the oppressor that the peasant saw and experienced on a daily basis, mm -hmm. right? So when the peasants, the, the way anti-Semitism works, it's not that we were pushed to the bottom of society like black Americans. We were pushed to the middle so we had very visible inclusion and very visible upward mobility. And and we were the visible oppressor. So when the peasants had enough and wanted to fight for for, for their rights, they would attack the Jew. Right. And yeah. that would not yeah. the not the Lord, not the castle. They would attack the shtetl. And that's what we would call a pogrom. Mm -hmm. And Jews had to operate in that framework because we felt powerless and we felt we needed the protection of the powerful Gentile to be able to survive. And those peasants are Jew haters anyway, so screw them, right? That was the attitude that a lot of us came with. And I think that what ultimately happened is, first of all, in the United States, that kind of became a little bit more sophisticated. Like, for example, in addition to the whole you know conversation about uh, exploitative uh, record label executives and slumlords, there were also Jews who genuinely meant well and were public school teachers and social workers who I mean, were still the face of an unjust system to inner city communities. Yeah, right? I mean, I, I think that... But, but here in Israel, we've unfortunately fallen into this trap on an international scale, meaning Israel is essentially perceived as the Robin to America's Batman in the Middle East, as the junior partner of the empire in the region. And we believe, we like a lot of Israelis, and you hear it from politicians and security experts all the time, that our survival depends on our relationship with the United States. Um I wouldn't say our survival, but I definitely would say that without the United States, things would be much harder. I, I think that there's been a huge push 
by anti-Semites in, in the community of the Western left, um, in the academic community specifically, that have pushed forward this narrative of a new form of anti-Semitism that really lies a, 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 in the heart of their anti-Zionist ideology. I, I think that it's extremely um, inappropriate to constantly you know, throw Jews in with some ruling class where at the same time, you know, even in modern history in America, it, it, we were still working on an upward, you know, you know, social ladder, so to speak. You know, did we get certain opportunities? Yes, for sure, without a doubt. But I mean, some of those opportunities were created because other opportunities were, were cut out to mm -hmm. us. You know, a great example is Hollywood. A, a great example is banking. You know, um, we, we were involved in banking because they weren't allowed to do anything else. So, so let, let me ask you this, and let's say everything you're saying is true, okay? I would make the argument that Israel, the way for us to break free of systemic anti-Semitism is for us to make a conscious decision to be on the side of the oppressed and not the oppressors of the world, okay? Let's say we're I, I don't think, I don't say think might makes wrong. I didn't say might makes wrong. I, I think... And I don't think weak okay. makes right. I agree. I agree. We agree on this. But what I am saying is you, we're like Darth Vader. Israel's like Darth Vader. Yeah, I completely disagree with that. Okay, I'll tell you why. I think that Darth Vader is empowered by the empire and the emperor in order to oppress the galaxy, but Darth Vader is also the only one who can kill the emperor. Meaning Israel came back to life to lead humanity into a post-capitalist world. Israel is meant to be a, you know... What does that mean, a post-capitalist world? What does that mean? It means a world where production is determined according to human need and not corporate greed it means a world then put caps on corporations it's no, not no, no, post but, but, i mean it's not post-capitalist like, but, but i'm saying that israel came back to life after two thousand years to create something new to, to lead humanity somewhere new okay and we can't do that until we liberate ourselves from being a vassal of the united states and liberate ourselves psychologically from not a vassal of one. I'll, I'll give you an example. A, we are I'll, not a vassal of the United I'll, States. It's so unfair he, to throw that out. Like I mean, like like I get what you're saying, mm -hmm. but I don't think that's fair. Like because it's not the situation like it used to be with Rome. Let, okay. And two, let me ask you wait, a question. Hold on, hold on. Two, you said something very interesting. You're talking about this revolution. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to what I said earlier. Mm -hmm. Zionism was about creating the individual revolution in the Jew mm -hmm. to create a national change of consciousness, which it did. Okay. Okay. That has not happened in America. Mm -hmm. Okay. That did not. That part of Zionism never reached the American Jewish community because they rejected it. That is why we have the situation with America the way that we do. That is why you have rabbis mm. giving lectures about Israeli war crimes or pulling out of certain areas while, you know, the White House chief of staff is at the 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 best friend's bar mitzvah. I don't know if you've heard that story. It was like the we Clinton's like chief of staff at one point was at a Shabbat service and like this rabbi knew he was coming so he gave this very politically charged speech and three weeks later like the Oslo Accords got announced it's mm -hmm. I know my details are a little off here but it's a, it's just it is something that had happened uh, in the early 90s you have that because they never were revolutionized in their own mm -hmm. ideology so let me own... ask you a question practically if we are going to reach the American Jewish community specifically Gen Z and Millennials right do you do you think you'll have an easier time reaching them 
while using the word Zionism. I understand what you want to do. Yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah. Want, you want to give them a national consciousness. We agree on that. And we want to make them feel like they're participants in their people's story. Right. And they're not just like they're, they're not just like I characters. In, I love it. Yeah. Not just characters in the American dream, but characters in Amisville's story. Right. Right. Is it easier to reach them today from a strategic perspective using the word Zionism and denying the Palestinian narrative or by acknowledging the crimes of Zionism against Palestinians and not self-identifying as a Zionist? Oh, wow. That was a different question that I thought you were going to ask What do you think I was going to ask you? I thought you were asking me just about using the word Zionism and explaining what or, or, or well, even I, Judaism I, or whatever. I, I do believe so we waste a, a lot of time with there's that. There's a great quote mm -hmm. by Heschel. Okay. Okay. Have you ever read The Prophets by Heschel? No. Okay. A great book and commentary on the prophets. Mm -hmm. Abraham Joshua Heschel, you know, Hasidic rabbi who became the like main spiritual leader of the conservative movement, but wasn't It's complicated, yeah. It's complicated. Mm -hmm. Amazing book. He has this great... I mean, they saved his life. They have this great quote. Mm -hmm. Okay. He has this great quote. And he was like, a prophet of God never mentioned God when giving his actual prophecy. Think about that for a second. Call Mar Hashem. It we says, we only know what's written down and 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 solidified. Oh, but but, but Heschel knew what no, they no, actually no, my, said. He's getting to a deeper point. Okay. okay, let me let me let me break it down for you. He was basically saying that the sales pitch had to be so good mm -hmm. in order for the prophet not to be killed. Mm -hmm. Because if you gave false prophecy, you were you were killed. You were a charlatan. Not me, a false prophet. Right, a false prophet. Like yeah. if you if you even not me, messed up. Right, if, if anyone <laughs> if anyone gave a false prophecy, that was it. And so he was referring to the fact that when he a prophet was fighting for God, mm -hmm. he would have to make the argument so well that they, he wouldn't even need to mention God, that just out of sheer logic, they would mm -hmm. be like, oh, okay, you're right. Okay, to prevent himself from, from being, you know, killed or whatever. Okay. In my opinion, you shouldn't have to mention anything other than talking about that individual person's story. Okay. And I think that that work is much easier done on the individual level than on the group okay. level. I definitely think there are things like points like the Jewish collective responsibility, the individual Jewish responsibility, wearing the lenses of Jewish history, you know, understanding the Hebrew language. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think there are ways to curate that type of speaking and workshopping and mm -hmm and uh, identity work. Mm -hmm. Do I think that mentioning Zionism is necessary? The actual word, you don't always have to use it. There are definitely ways to explain the concepts of Zionism without saying the word. Mm -hmm. um, but I... Well, what know, are those kind? That's my real question. Wait, wait, what are hold the, on, hold yeah. on. Then, then, second question. I was very lucky at the University of Arizona. I got to study with a Palestinian whose, mm -hmm. whose doctoral advisor was Rashid Khalidi, who wrote the book, The Palestinian Identity, A Making of a Modern Consciousness, which is considered like the book on Palestinian identity. And I, I was very fortunate to be immersed in the Palestinian narrative. And I always like to joke that I could argue for the Palestinian narrative better than I can the Zionist narrative, because that's how like much I dove into it and, and anti-Zionist literature. And my focus in my master's was was the Islamization of the secular Palestinian identity. And, and um, a lot, I wrote about a lot of other things in terms of how the Arab-Israeli conflict came into being because of the Tanzimat reforms of the Ottoman Empire and the the sale of lands of the farmers to the elite, you know, landowner families who were really the the heads of clans that really had a very oppressive system between the workers of their land and the landowners. Um, I do not think that you can understand the Zionist movement without understanding 
the Palestinian narrative. I, 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 I think it's extremely important. Whether or not I agree with it is a completely different argument and beast to unpack. But you cannot thoroughly explain the history of the founding of the state of Israel and the modern Middle East without understanding what the Palestinians are, who they are, where they come from, what their culture is, and why they believe the things that they believe. And, and it doesn't matter if you agree with the term Nakba or not. It doesn't matter if you think that Israel does no wrong or only does wrong. Okay, If you do not understand all of the facts on the ground and all of the different perspectives, you are bound to fail one way or another. And, and I always felt when I was doing what I would call individual activism on my college campus, my ability to engage with people that had immigrated from Palestine or, or Palestinian refugee camps or grew up as, you know, uh, you know, second generation Palestinians in the diaspora, which I, I wouldn't necessarily consider them Palestinian because I, I think that that type of identity transfer really belongs to the Jews, uh, you know, in, in a cultural way. But I mean, you can't you can't expect to meet your enemy on the battlefield and make peace if you can't find common ground. And, and the relationship between the Jewish state in the Arab world and the Palestinian people and the Arab world is a very similar thing. And, and that is a huge piece of the puzzle when it comes to moving things forward. So I, I, don't, think, I don't think that you can ignore anything. Well, hold on. I, I also believe that reconciliation with the Palestinians is an objective of Jewish liberation now. I've, we've already come to three. I've identified three objectives to this chapter of Jewish history, decolonizing Jewish identity, freedom from the United States, and reconciliation with the Palestinians. Yeah, I, I don't think freedom from the United States is any... I don't think we... We're not in a situation where we need freedom from. Like, I, I have freedom from. Do you? We do whatever we Let want. me ask you a question. To what extent do you think the U.S. administration is involved in internal Israeli political policies right now, whether it's judicial reform, whether it's the NGO law... I can ask Tom Knights next week. Or ask Tom Knights. I mean, I think they're very angry right now what, because we're not listening to what What about they conceding want. territory? I, I mean, like, I, we were for conceding territory. Were we? Who's we? Uh, the majority of the Israeli public when? was okay with the Oslo Accords in the early okay, 90s, and then, and then it flipped. But, no, but, okay, first of all... I would have, I would have been okay with it right. in the okay, early so 90s I'll, I'll tell if you something. actual peace. Yeah. The best thing that happened with the Oslo Accords is that they failed. And it showed that that paradigm can't be can't be moved forward. You know, when I first discovered, I was a teenager, when I first discovered that Israel was expected to give up land for peace, I was embarrassed. It's that, crazy. That, it's that, crazy no, thought. No, 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 it's crazy. I, but, but I'll tell you why. It's I, not Middle Eastern. It's not, it's not human. It's not. No, hold what? On. Yeah, no, I agree. Hold on, hold on. I knew when I was 14 years old that if a group of Italian kids offer me peace in exchange for my shoes or my jacket or my watch, the answer is no. Okay? Is things are worth fighting for. Yes. Right? And that's it's an issue of honor. It's an issue of self-respect. And when, you know, I, at the time, I didn't even have the thought maybe the land belongs to somebody else. That would have been a different conversation. But I was coming from the perspective, this is the land of the Jews. And the government of Israel is expected to give up this territory in exchange for peace. 
you know what? That made me feel like my people's peace has no value. Because if you and I are making peace, if my peace is valuable, you don't want my headphones or my watch or my shoes. You want my peace. Mm-hmm. If if you're giving me money for peace, if you're giving me gas for peace, if you're giving me oil for peace, if you're giving me land for peace, it means your peace is invaluable, my peace is. And I wanted I wanted Israel's peace to be valuable. And for Israel's peace to be valuable, we we cannot give anything but peace. Dude, Sadat said it very, very clearly. I got a peninsula, he got a piece of paper. You know, I, I mean, like, no, not but that I disagree be- with that piece, per se. I do. But it's a great example. I do. But it's a great example. I'd like, rather have Sinai. I, I, I'd rather I have don't Sinai. know how I feel about that, but I will say this. <laughs> I know. I, I, re- I really hate that I can't drive from Tel Aviv to Sharm el-Sheikh. And that drives me insane. Because that's part of the piece, that we can't bring Israeli cars into there. And, like, mm-hmm. that doesn't make sense to me because that doesn't sound like peace because that's not a border. Mm-hmm. That is... I, I mean, I, I think... I think 13 years ago, 12 years ago, if you would have asked me how I felt about that piece because of what was going on in the Sinai with ISIS and everything else, I would have said, now we're seeing the reason why we shouldn't have done it. But it didn't get out of control. But it sounds to me like your position on these issues is determined. I'm not for land for peace. It's determined by external factors. No, I am not for land for peace. Because you don't think it works. I don't think it works. But not because you're committed to your homeland and you're willing to kill and die for it. Oh, no. I I mean, like, listen, you, you, you have to prime me from this land i mean like there's a reason why i spend so much time in so so, so, so you are telling like, me like, like the would... biggest problem mm-hmm. is that and why land for peace exists is because they've never set foot in these areas they've never set foot in these areas they don't they've never who they, i would say um, i would say Ehud Omar? no I'm, just gonna, I'm gonna make a very generalized statement Ehud Barak? i'm gonna make a generalized statement to be the majority of the israeli people that are let's say support land for peace support land for peace die hard that is how they believe they believe mm-hmm. that all policy should be like that i would say 90 percent of them have never gone over the green line mm-hmm. okay other than maybe in jerusalem if they live in jerusalem because jerusalem's an open city now but like i would say none of them have had wine in the judean hills i would say none of them have gone hiking not one of them even has been to the top of the temple mount to see what the actual situation is i i i I think it comes from ignorance. By the way, I would say there are people who are trying to advance Jewish history who have a less principled and less sophisticated approach that I believe are making three major errors in terms of trying to advance Jewish history. One is cooperation with Christian Zionists. Two is fighting for the Temple Mount. And three is racist attitudes towards Palestinians. Say that all again one more time. I'd say that those who are interested in advancing Jewish history forward three mistakes. but don't have the tools to figure out what the next goals truly are, mm-hmm. are making three very uh, problematic errors, in my opinion. One of them is cooperation with Christian Zionists. Uh-huh. Another one is making the issue the Temple Mount, making like that the terrain of struggle, the Temple Mount. I don't think we're anywhere close to there in terms of our historic process. I'm not, I'm not trying to... I'm not, I mean, you, I'm not saying uh, you. And, and number three is racist attitudes towards Palestinians. So I, and, and I'll say this as a student of Rav Kook, by the way. I'm, I am coming from the Beit Midrash of Rav Kook, Rav Tziuda Kohen Kook, the son of Rav Avram Yitzhak Kohen Kook. Uh, and Rav Tziuda is, of course, known as the ideological father of efforts to build Jewish communities in the West Bank and Gaza. And I would say as a student of Rav Kook that Rav Tziuda was against those three things. He was against cooperating with Christian Zionists. He was against going up to the Temple Mount and he was against racist attitudes towards Palestinians. So here's what I'll say about going up to the Temple Mount. It's the same thing that Steve Carell asked in The 40-Year-Old Virgin. If you don't use it, do you lose it? (laughs) 
That was funny. What, what's his That's Steve Carell? Funny. Steve Carell. You, okay, we can edit that part out. Okay. Like, I, I, I would say this. Uh, I, I, so I disagree with you on the Temple Mount for one reason. The only way that we will have the peace that we need is if the world under... Because the, the temp, freedom of the Temple Mount and freedom of prayer on the Temple Mount has everything to do with every single oppressed people. Okay, because because that th this place is ours. This is not something that can be, you know, argued. Here's what I'm looking okay. for from you. Yeah. I want to know what problems the Jewish people have today that Zionist ideology, Zionist theories... Zionist practice can address and resolve self-defense and Hebrew. Okay, first, so the, the, first, first off, just all right, off so the bat, which so are the, in two the most important. In, so that makes sense. That's a real answer. I yeah. hear your answer, and I think that's relevant to Jews in the diaspora. Both of those things. Uh, yeah, I think in the land of Israel, we have Jewish self-defense, and we have the Hebrew language. We, we also have a growing population that's refusing to speak Hebrew and refusing to self-defend. Okay, so for the, I'd say for the Jewish leftovers that have not been advanced through the Zionist revolution, we can say Zionism might still have some work to do, some sweeping to do, but for the Jewish people as a collective that's been in its land and has enjoyed political self-determination for 75 years, what comes next? You can't tell someone whose grandfather served in the army and whose father and him grew up speaking Hebrew that, okay, we still need this, this revolutionary change that you're going to learn Hebrew and you're going to go to the army. It's not a revolution change for him. That's his reality. So for those who've already come to the point where military service, self-defense, the Hebrew language well, what, are part of the reality. Where does education stop? Education no, no, no. The question is what's next. Right. So the question is what's next. I, I've identified I mean, goals for what's next. How do we achieve those goals? I'd like to know how do we take the conditions created by Zionism success to break free of so, the United States, so would, to I, decolonize Jewish identity, to make peace with our neighbors. I don't, like, I don't, I wanna, know, what, I don't know what this United States thing has to do with anything that we're talking about. I don't really get it. I, I, I don't well, think, hold on. I don't think that just because somebody's a third generation Israeli that speaks Hebrew and goes to the army means that their Zionist revolution is over. I, I think there's education that has to come with that. There's learning the land. There's there's understanding their place in the world as a modern Jew. There's there's using their Zionism to create their Parnassa. The you know there's there's many 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 things that you know the using their Zionism to create their parnasa? well. I mean, like when you when you get a job in the mm -hmm. land of Israel, mm -hmm. it's, it's I mean, like whether you're starting a high tech company or flipping burgers. I mean, there's a piece of Zionism in that. I mean, like or, or starting a winery, mm -hmm. you know, especially starting a winery just because it's it's all about you know the green Zionism of tilling the land and working the land and mm -hmm. producing fruit from the land and creating a product from the land and and sharing that mm -hmm. with your people. Um, you know, I, I really think that, uh, I, I think the main challenge, um, for the next 50 years or 25 years is going to be Jewish self-defense and Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that to overlook the, the seriousness of that component, because I, I, I'm sorry, I truly believe that we are afraid to have sovereignty over the Temple Mount because of some mythological or eschatological thought of like the temple needing to ascend from heaven or that the Mashiach has to come. And like, you know, you think we're afraid to take possession of the Temple Mount because of the ramifications? I, I, I think I think we're afraid of the ramifications of what it could mean. I, I think we're afraid to be the custodians of the center of where religious freedom of expression is supposed to come from. And I think we cop out. It's um you know to take people up there and to make sure that they've, you know, I'm a big believer in going to the mikvah beforehand, not even because I believe in the importance of the mikvah or the mitzvah of the mikvah, but it's because this place is different 
mm-hmm. from every other place on earth. And mm-hmm. you should, if this place is different from every place on earth, if you're a Jew, you should dip in the mikvah. Mm-hmm. But because it, it's it's acknowledging that this is a different space from everywhere else on earth. And you don't need to go into a mikvah to enter almost every other place on earth. You don't need to go to the mikvah to enter a, um, synagogue. a, a synagogue. You don't need to enter a mikvah to hold a Sefer Torah. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and although it might be a good idea, it maybe like uh, you know, but 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 to deny our role as a light unto mm. the nations, okay, as as those who administer the the what are we the priests on earth? Exactly. But yeah, but we have to be it. And, we, and but we, we cannot be it if we don't have our, uh, as Mordechai ben Abraham would say, our technology, like as uh, uh, other people would say, our. Our, our supplemental places, you know, how we, we are, there is a huge, Jonathan Pollard said something very interesting about Esther. And and she, he said that Esther had two goals, one to get him free and one to bring him back as a real Jew to the land of Israel mm-hmm. and to get the galut out of him. Mm-hmm. Sovereignty over the Temple Mount is the ultimate, ultimate destruction of the galut in the mentality of the Jews. Yeah, I just don't think we're there yet. I don't think that's the next goal. I'd like to get to the Temple it's, Mount it's, one day, it's, it's but it's not, not about it being a goal. It's just no, well, about... For me, I was traumatized by the destruction of the Jewish communities in Gush Katif. For me, I want to advance... I think everybody was traumatized. No, 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 I'm trying to achieve something very specific. I'm trying to advance the liberation of the Jewish people, and I'm trying to use the scientific tools available to us to be able to do it right, to do it methodically, to do it in a principled way that actually addresses the needs of each step, understanding what the steps are. So Zionism got us to self-determination in our land, with our own language, an ingathering of exiles, a nation state with an economy, with an army, with roads and schools and healthcare providers. And now we have to think about what comes after that. What are you meant to do with that vessel? That design I just is- don't I just don't think that's finished. Like I don't think we're I finished mean, they, building roads. I don't think we're. I don't no, think sure, we're you're, you're not. But but it's no longer a revolutionary act to build a road in this country is no longer a revolutionary act. Whereas you could say oh 100 years God, ago, I'll tell been. you right now, a revolutionary act would be one road from the Golan to a lot that I can drive in two and a half hours. That's revolutionary. How about a bullet train? Revolutionary. Okay, again, so those are great things to pursue, but I think there are bigger goals of Jewish history that are on par with ingathering exiles and reviving a language that we need to be identifying and pursuing. Okay. And I don't think Zionism creates a space for that. I think Zionism gather the exiles without Hebrew. That's what I'm saying. Zionism only provides the space to be able to continue with the goals we already, for the most part, achieved en masse, but still have some stragglers left behind. Or to think up things like, hey, a bullet train. But in terms of things that would be a revolutionary change in the reality of the Jewish people, like getting free from U.S. empire, like decolonizing Jewish identity, like reconciling with our neighbors, like those things Zionism doesn't have the fuel to achieve. I, 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 I or the ideological I, tools I to pursue. I don't understand what America has to do with anything right now. Like, 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 if we were having this conversation during the Iraq war, I think it would hold a little bit more water your argument about the United States. But the problem is is that we are now entering an age where the Arab peoples they want they want governments that don't lie to them and use their resources to fight a country that they can't beat. We 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 are we are rec- we are realizing the move of modernization and the western world eastward. The future of the world is the Middle East. It's not Europe and it's not North America. It, it, you know, I mean, like, look at what Saudi Arabia has planned. 
Lou, what Dubai has planned. The the big hiccup right now is is Iran, and I think the I think the relationship. One, one place where I could agree about America is that we should have attacked Iran ten years ago, and, and and that has not been very easy to do with American policy. At, at the same time. Uh, so I, you'd say they control us militarily? No, they prevent us from doing the things no. that we believe to be in our I, interest. Listen, I, I, well, I, here's the real problem: we haven't defined our interests. That's the true oh, problem. I mean, Israel like, hasn't defined its own national interests. What Israel has defined is who it wants to be allied to, and then we often recreate our interests based on what we, those our powers interests want. Are very clear. I mean, listen. We, we, Do we, we have an interest in being in Hebron? Is it part of the Israeli national interest to be in Hebron? I personally think so. You think so, but I'm saying I, I that, personally that, think so. I think there. I think that there to are our policymakers. I think, I think there are. I think many policymakers would agree with that. Okay. Actually, I, I I think that. It, it, listen, for the first sixty years, mm-hmm. we were worried about what happens tomorrow. Mm-hmm. After the first sixty years, we finally started worrying about what happens a month from now, what happens a year from now, what happens a decade from now, and that change has taken a very long time to seep into Israeli society. You know, twenty thirteen when I moved to this country the, in twenty eleven, that was the first election that had more to do with social and economic internal issues than war or security. And that's a huge change. And like those changes are happening. So I I mean, I think we're going to emerge in the next 20 years as a major superpower. Like I I think it all depends on what happens with Ukraine and Russia and, and what happens with the Russian Federation. But I think there's a huge possibility, which is a huge change. I mean, I mean, I don't really see Britain based on what's happening right now, holding on to their status as a superpower. Especially with Brexit and everything else, and you know the the financial and and political. How, how do you define superpower? I mean, superpower is when you want things from somebody when they have the power to self-sustain. Okay, and I and I think that our government, you know, one of the reasons why I work so much on the wine industry and promoting Israeli wine is because we receive about a hundred and how much money a year from the United States? Roughly one hundred and fifty million dollars a year, maybe more, something something like that around that in military surplus and whatever and like we only export about that much in wine but if you look at france if you look at america if you look at argentina if you look at australia they're exporting 2.5 billion plus Mm -hmm. okay if we were able to build up our wine industry Mm -hmm. okay to and the tourism to where it is with other countries which is totally possible our wine industry is only 35 years old whereas everybody else has been making fine wine for 150 years plus we become economically independent and, uh, and no, with no need to rely on every anybody. Mm-hmm. So I I think like I would word what you're saying about the United States differently. I don't want to rely on them. I I want to be economically independent. I want them to need us, not the other way around. I I want every country to know if I got to defend myself, I got to ask Israel how to do it. I'll be honest. We we've had a relatively long episode together here. And I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that Zionism... I, I, I am convinced that certain Zionist goals that were achieved in the Zionist era are still unfinished for a large sector of the Jewish people. I'm convinced of that. Mm-hmm. And that there should still be efforts, whether we call them Zionist or not, whether we label them Zionist or not, there should still be efforts at increasing Aliyah, knowledge of the Hebrew language, fluency in the Hebrew language, the ability for Jews to defend themselves physically... I think it's hugely important, but I think that Bikadol, like big picture, I think the Jewish people as a collective in its land that already speaks the Hebrew language and knows how to fight, I think 
there need to be new objectives to aspire towards that are outside of what Zionism provided us with. Um, I'm more focused on there. And the truth is, if, if you and people like you are going to focus on the sectors of the Jewish people who have not yet uh, who, who have not yet been impacted by the Zionist revolution in a real way, then that's great. Like, like I actually think that's a, a very noble endeavor. I think that's important because that needs to happen as well. Um, I guess my final question for you is, I know that some of your friends, also people I would categorize as neo-Zionists, uh, I see them as being very influenced by figures like Enoch Wilf, and I see that they like to make a distinction between Zionism and the type of thing that exists among the Jews in the West Bank, the national consciousness and political aims of Jews like me living in the West Bank. And mm -hmm. they make the argument that, no, they, the Jews in Tel Aviv, fighting to be a normal nation, etc., are the Zionists. And the Jews living in Hebron and the Jews living in Betel and the Jews living in Yitzhar and the Jews living in Kedumim are something un-Zionist, something not Zionist. Would you agree with that or do you think they're wrong? Uh, I think that there's nuance to that. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're 100% right, for sure. I mean, like, I love Inat Wilf. I think she's great. I think she's a great articulator of a lot of things in English. I, I think her book, The War of Return, on the right of return, and, and the history of 48 and how that all started is an amazing book, and everybody should read it if they want to understand the Palestinian negotiating tactic of using the right of return and in peace talks, it's a, it's a phenomenal You don't think the book. refugee issue is a very real and painful issue for Palestinians? I, I think it's a very real and painful issue, and I think it's also explained very well as to why it is the issue that it is in, in this book. I, 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 there's no other refugee issue like the Palestinian issue because it was handled the way that it was handled. And, and so, you know, feelings aside, like there was a specific choice made to handle the Palestinians the way that they were handled, which has created the Palestinian refugee crisis. Um, I think what Wilf and some others, I think that what they're referring to when they say, oh, we're not the Zionist, they're not the Zionists, we're not, is that when they feel that maybe that is something that is done over the green line that could jeopardize the entire project. Mm -hmm. I think that's what they're referring to. I don't think they're saying you're not a Zionist and I'm not a Zionist, but it's well, like... I think they are saying that. I think they, me, they think there's me, a different ideology there, at play there here. There is. There is. But like... What let, you call the ju Judaism. Well, well, let's just say... Let's just say... Maybe that's a good word. Let's say there's a hill over there that we want to settle. Mm -hmm. Okay? And settling that hill causes an international controversy... And, and it allows for three weeks of news cycle to show how colonial and this and that we mm -hmm. are, blah, 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 blah. I think that's mostly the nuance of what they're referring to. Do yeah. I believe that they think your ideology or my ideology or the, the next person's ideology is different from theirs? Yeah, they have a very specific ideology. I'm a student of it. I was taught by a Ben-Gurionist. I, I find very many things very important uh, in that ideology. It's why I say I'm not part of the left or the right, you know, or the center or whatever. I just am who I am. I'm a Zionist. Because there is very important aspects to, you know, Rav Cook and Jabotinsky and Herzl and Ben-Gurion and all these different leaders who ended up creating factions of the Zionist movement. No, they Rav Cook is not a Zionist. I, I See, I would disagree. No, like, there, there is something called religious Zionism that yeah. was never connected to Rav Cook. I, I, okay, fine. Like the religious Zionism of Rav Reines and the Mizrahi movement and Bnei Kiva I, I, I was something that was... Rav Cook contributed to Zionist thought. Rav Cook contributed to a stream of thought that was not Zionist, but appreciated Zionism and supported uh, what, Zionism. Whatever. So my, here's my point. I, I, I think that drawing the lines between each other is creating 
a very big divide right now because people aren't actually able to sit and talk anymore. Great example of like what we've been able to do today. Mm-hmm. Okay. And like this is the problem that it's not. No, but happening. I know I'm talking to a Zionist. Yes. I'm not, a post Zionist talking to a Zionist. But people aren't having those discussions in a respectful way. Mm-hmm. Instead, they're throwing water at each other mm-hmm. on Knesset television. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and nobody's, you know, I remember when I, I right after this last election, I was supposed to have a meeting with Ben Gvir. Mm-hmm. And like, people were like, are you crazy? Like, you know, what's the matter with you? Like, how are you going to sit with him? How are you going to legitimize him? I was like, it's not about sitting with him or legitimizing him. I, I go, I care about Israel and the Zionist movement. And I don't want to see what I consider to be his faux pas to harm mm-hmm. this country. And I was like, if I could spend 30 minutes with him explaining, maybe instead of saying this, you could say it this way, or maybe if you didn't do it this way, but you could do it this way, and that can improve the image of the country, I, I did my job. So I, I, I think that like, I, I think that there's a, a clear divide there, and I think that it's a mistake to divide people that way. And I think that you know, the more we begin to learn about each other, I also think the more that people will experience life outside of their comfort zone, I, you know, I, I, I'm always very moved when I, you know, come to Judea and Samaria. You know, one of my favorite places is near Alon Moret. You know, I, near Shrem. Near Shrem. Like, it's it's just, uh, you know, I love to sit at the winery, at the Kabir winery, and stare at Mount Elbaz, where, where Joshua ben Nun took the ancient Israelites to shed the last of their Egyptian culture. It's a beautiful area. I love going to see, you know, the Shiloh winery. <laughs> You know, and and Itamar is one of my favorite places in this country, and I love how it's become a real village and city now. You know, and it took the time to do that after the Fogels were were brutally killed. You know, I I I, I think that um, there's a lot to unpack, and I think like nuance is very necessary when looking at these issues. I just don't like putting people into boxes because I think that's what's making these separations. Okay, I, no, no, but but we also have to be precise in yes. our efforts to move forward. Listen, yeah. I I appreciate what you're doing, Adam. I'd like you to tell our listeners where they can find your work. Uh you you can find us at wineonthevine.org or tiif.org. You can follow us on. Instagram at Wine on the Vine or TIIF. I'm Wine with Adam on Instagram. Um, you know, we I publish quite a lot on JNS, and you can follow my show there, Wine with Adam. And uh, I'm always available. I, okay. I love hearing from young people across the world, and it's you know the most important thing is just that everybody you know continues to pursue their 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 Zionist dream. Or whatever dream they're having. Uh, thank you so much, Adam, for Oh, it was with a us. pleasure to be here. Uh, this is a great conversation. We recorded two hours and nine minutes. Are you yeah, going no, to cut it down? Yeah, we're going to try to cut it down in, in such a way that makes me sound much smarter than you. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. We have a lot of experience doing this. Okay, great. Um, hey, listeners, if you enjoy this show, please support us. This show is completely listener-funded. If you want to help us continue, then uh, you can go to visionmovement.org or visionmag.org and click the donate button on the menu bar up top. Uh, again, we are completely listener-funded, and we need your support to continue. Also, if you have any thoughts about this episode, do you identify as a Zionist? Do you identify as a post-Zionist? Do you think we should be identifying as Zionists in order to reach the next stage of Jewish history? Or should we acknowledge that Zionism is a movement that's behind us uh, and we need to create something new in order to move forward? Can post-Zionism be something that's not a retreat from Jewish national aspirations, but really the next stage of it? Uh, I want to hear what you think. You can get in touch with me by going to either of those websites, visionmovement.org or visionmag.org, and clicking contact on the menu bar up top and uh, just put in the subject, 
the next stage podcast and it'll get to me. Uh, thank you so much, Adam, for being Thank living. you for having me. And if anybody wants to check out the show notes to this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage nine nine. Vision's on Instagram, right? Yeah, Vision is on Instagram. You can check us out on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. We're gonna, but we're mostly gonna sh- we're gonna share this on Instagram though, yeah? Visit the show. Awesome.